0: and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. This episode of Insights at the Edge features my guest Caverly Morgan. Caverly is a meditation teacher author and a nonprofit leader. She's the founder of Peace in Schools, a nonprofit which has created the first four credit mindfulness class. It's called Mindful Studies that's offered in public high schools. And we're gonna be talking quite a bit about that. The introduction of mindfulness and compassion practices for teens right in the high school system She's also the founder of Presence Collective, a community committed to personal and collective transformation. With Sounds True, Caverly Morgan is the author of a beautiful new book that Caverly has poured her years of practice and her heart and soul into. It's called The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. And at the center of the book is the intersection of the depth of our spiritual life with how we address the problems we're facing right now in our world today, that intersection. Here's my conversation with Caverly Morgan. Caverly, welcome. Tammy,
1: I'm so incredibly grateful and honored to be here thank you so much
0: all right let's let's jump right in one thing i learned about you is that you were a zen monk for eight years in a monastery where silence was practiced so tell us i mean it's very unusual and you know brings <laughs> up a lot of curiosity so first just share a little bit about why you decided to be a monk and what that process was like for you and then what was it like for eight years
1: Well, Tammy, I'll start by acknowledging that I did not mean to be a monk. I really didn't. I had no idea that my uh, love of practice would lead to being a monk when I was going on various uh, meditation retreats. It wasn't until my teacher at the time turned to me in one of our one-on-one guidance appointments um that it was suggested that you know i could i could go to the monastery for an extended period of practice at the time it felt reasonable because i was at, it was a relationship that had ended i had finished art school felt reasonable to say okay well i'll take 6 months to do an intensive immersion Uh, to really dive in deeply and wholeheartedly to Zen training. And then in my mind, I was going to leave the monastery and go out into the world. And I mentioned in the book, I even, it was very specific for some reason. I had this visualization of living in San Francisco with a dancer. And I even had a dog named Dakota. I don't know why, but that was, that was my story. So being it wasn't until I was asked to recommit after that six month period, that I felt at the time that I had only scratched the surface of what was possible regarding training. And so from there, I uh, recommitted each year to further um, further study. And yes, the backdrop was silence. So I became quite accustomed to navigating a training experience in which there were really no distractions from the experience of training. I didn't have my own bank account. I wasn't tracking, um, paying monthly bills. I was I didn't own a cell phone, which is at this point seems particularly radical. But I I gave myself wholeheartedly to that to that training.
0: Now, Caverly, if I were to ask you, what was the biggest, and I know this is kind of like, really, come on, Tammy, it's a very kind of American question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The biggest insight, the biggest transformational experience, if you will, that you had when you were practicing for that eight-year period, what would you say? Just humor me.
1: No, Tammy, it's a neat question. No one's ever asked me that question. And it's interesting to me just to be present to what arose when you asked it. Which uh, was what arose immediately was the the day that I had an experience in which I asked myself, the very thing that I've been longing for is my own being. what are we doing here? <laughs> so ironically enough, I think the most important insight, again, I've never voiced this before in this way, but it was so important. This moment where I realized we can practice and train forever and ever. And if that's just something you enjoy doing great, wonderful, do it. But it wasn't, it wasn't the training that created an experience that was there prior to me deciding to be a monk prior, meaning it, it's so fundamental, our our very being. So it was an important insight to actually question what are we doing here? Like, what are we, what are, what is going on with, uh, our uh, how how we're going about practice? Now that didn't mean it wasn't valuable. It just meant that it was important for me to have an experience where I got to question the nature of what we were doing.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And in a sense, you could say you went from quote unquote, this is my language, practice to performance in deciding to leave monastic life and enter all the challenges of the world. I mean, would you say that's true? Your biggest insight came as part of the inspiration for you to leave? And why did you leave? It's another way of asking.
1: Yeah, thank you. This is this is another important piece of it, because leaving wasn't a glorified moment of, oh, it must be time for me to bring my knowledge out into the world. I have to use that kind of cloud like airy fairy voice when I say this, because I'm trying to be dramatic about what it might seem, how it could appear on paper. But in actuality, leaving was a very disruptive experience for me because my teacher suggested that it was time for me to move, to move on. And it in that particular moment, it, it was not what I would have chosen. So it was, it was disturbing and in Zen fashion, it wasn't warm and fussy. It was a very dramatic push out of the nest. And I and I spent quite a bit of time, I left the monastery and I went to, you You might recall my dear friend Paula Sperenson is in the book. He's He wrote the book, Finding One's Way with Clay. He's passed now, but he was an artist in North Carolina. And I, I went, I, I sort of fled to his home uh, and lived in his attic for a period of time while I maintained a monastic schedule and started to get my feet on the ground of the The relative world, you know, what, what was I going to be? How was I going to be moving forward was a question that was not just a esoteric spiritual question. It was very practical. What am I going to do now?
0: Okay. So you were kicked out of the nest and you mentioned here you are, you find yourself in the quote unquote relative world. So let's just get into it, Caverly, because In the book, the heart of who we are, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that part of the working thesis of the book is expressed here in a sentence from the beginning where you say, I believe that true and lasting world change depends on knowing ourselves in the absolute sense and that it's about knowing ourselves in the absolute sense that we can then apply to the challenges in the quote unquote relative world. And I'm imagining that many people are hearing these terms for the first time. What are you guys talking about? Absolute sense, relative world. There's both the absolute and the relative. I'm confused. Let's start there. What do you mean by these two terms? Thank you,
1: relative that which is changing. Um, the, the, the relative world is the world in which I'm identifying as uh, a white cisgendered woman. Um, the relative world is the world in which I'm paying my bills. The relative world is the world in which things are coming and going, arising, passing, dissolving. The absolute is the ground of being out of which the relative appears, arises, exists, and the absolute is unchanging. So the absolute is that which is always present. And I don't, and I don't mean present in a limited sense. Sometimes we think of present as this tiny little moment in between past and future. But we could say the absolute is beyond a construct of time. The construct of time exists in the relative.
0: Okay, Caverly. So I'm I'm gonna just uh, track right with you and say. As a, as an advocate for the listener, but also from my own experience as a spiritual journeyer, I know things come and go impermanence, I get it. You know, emotions come and go thoughts come and go bodies come and go the weather comes and goes all these things come and go. What is unchanging question mark. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure like I mean, of course, I hear people talk about it all the time, the eternal. You refer to this, uh, that which doesn't change, using the Buddhist term, the unborn. How can you help us right here in this moment? know in our own experience, that which doesn't change. So we can say, I'm tracking with you, Kaverly. I'm right with you.
1: Well, I'm going to borrow an image that I found very useful the first time I heard it from the meditation teacher, Rupert Spira. And it was the image, what he did is he guided a student through a few questions. And so, again, I'm going to borrow those questions and and invite us in this moment to ask what, like, visualize for a moment. I'm going to riff off what Rupert did a little bit. I don't remember going into this much of a guided imagery, but for play, I'd like to do that now. So visualize for a moment yourself when you were five years old. How did it feel to be you in the world and then jump to an experience and and if you're listening track with me if you will now visualize that you're 10 you know roughly just imagine. Okay, in this experience what does it feel like to be me and now 15 so all the the drama of being a 15 year old is what's coming and going my likes my dislikes my aversion to x my my cravings but what's What's it feel like to be me under all of that? And then we'll just do one more. Visualize that you're 20. Don't just see it in your mind's eye, but actually go to an experience of being yourself. So my my question for the listener and, and you, Tammy, is, do those experiences of being feel different?
0: Right, and I think that probably most people, certainly I can track a sense of an essence quality that is a thread there throughout all those different ages. But the fact that it hasn't changed While i'm alive and incarnated doesn't necessarily give me confidence that i'm touching into something that's unborn that won't change upon my death, maybe it'll be extinguished at the time of death. Mm -hmm. And really you know i'm pushing this Caverly, because I think it's a core premise of the heart of who we are, is that what you're pointing people to do is first of all, realize this absolute in our own experience and then apply it, apply it to the changing circumstances of the world that are weighing on so many of us. But the the first part is that we actually know this. So I I wanna see if we can touch in even deeper.
1: Yes, thank you. I think it is important. And one of the reasons I think it's important is otherwise so many of the tools I offer in the book, so many of the contemplative technologies could be viewed as simply self-improvement practices. And that's not bad and it's not wrong, but it, the book is meant to guide us beyond the tendency to improve a sense of self that we actually aren't pausing the question because we're busy improving it and so what you're pointing to is how can we trust that there is truly something beyond this sense of separate self and is it possible that this sense of self that that what's beyond the sense of self is actually timeless we so first about that question i want i think it's very important to name i don't know i'm i'm speaking from my own direct experience but i don't i think it's important to acknowledge this isn't something that even the buddha ever ever he invited everybody to go to their own direct experience that's the best way to say it he he, he always underlined don't just trust my words so so the words are there and What I hope to do with a body of work like this book, The Heart of Who We Are, is to have page after page invitation to explore inquiry that guides us to direct experience on the very topic that you're speaking about. So what am I hoping folks will experience directly? I'm hoping that folks will become more intimate with the direct experience of our very being. And in my own experience, the more intimately I give myself permission to rest in this experience, the more I am able to recognize the nature of its reality. And the nature of its reality is that it is not bound by the notion of a separate self it's not bound by a space it's not bound by a concept of time as banke as zen master banke said it's it's unborn it's the undifferentiated experience of being and what i love most about the experience of getting to work so directly with teens is i've Proven in my own experience that this is not some esoteric thing that's abstract and that we read about and we're not sure if that's true or not, that that we all have equal capacity to experience directly our our own being. It's the most natural and actually simple thing.
0: Now, Caverly, we're going to return to applying this realization of the unborn to our collective social problems. But you introduce here your experience working with teens uh, through Peace in the Schools. And I wonder if you can just set the stage for us a bit, how after you left the monastery, what happened in your own life that you became the founder of Peace in Schools, and specifically how you've set this up, the work that Peace in Schools does with teenagers and what, what you've seen happen.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. I I'd like to answer that by moving backwards a little bit, because the most important thing I think in relationship to what you and I have been talking about Tammy is to underline how profound the moment was when I was doing demonstrations about the class for teens. And I dropped the phrase, you are not your thoughts it was like a pin dropped in the room because to to say you are not your thoughts was a way of guiding the teens in the room into an experience of a very important question in practice which is well then what or who am i i've i've identified so completely with all of these thoughts i've identified so completely with my emotions what what could I possibly be if not that? So I was doing these demonstrations in a high school gym, which is really a trip to think back about. The students didn't know they were gonna have a demonstration for a class that I was proposing uh, for the semester long experience at the high school called Mindful Studies. And I, to be honest, had no idea it was gonna take off the way I did. I was just meeting the students in the room and the principal gave space for this experience because he saw an after-school program in which I was with a, a colleague at the time, Alison Copasino, she was bringing in mindful movement and I was bringing in these contemplative practices, these tools. Um, recognizing the uh, conditioned mind, being able to see the uh, inner critic and recognize negative self talk, learning how to disidentify from that negative self talk, all tools that are in the book, and seeing and recognizing the mind of duality, how our mind is habituated to see things in terms of right, wrong, good, bad, this, that, black, white. So the students uh, came in, the principal suggested that I have uh, a demonstration. And he said, if you get 25 to 30 teens that are interested in this experience, I will create a semester-long course, which was very significant because um, I knew that the only way I could have real reach with these tools was to have it embedded in the school day. If it's after school, I'm missing the kids who play soccer. Um, If it's after school, I'm missing the kids who work or take care of mom or grandma. So that was an important um, opportunity that he provided. And he said, if you get 20 to 25 teens who want to take the class, I'll figure this out. And over 300 teens after two days of demonstrations said, we want this. And I think That was the beginning of something that hasn't simply been life-changing for me, but at this point, life-changing for thousands
0: of teens. Now, Kaverly, you made this distinction between self-improvement and what we might call self-realization or self-discovery. Why is that distinction so important to you?
1: Thank you, Tammy. I think that's such an important question. To me, it's at the crux of this entire conversation. If my attention is on improving myself, I will, by default, be maintaining a sense of separate self that is the very source of my suffering so freedom lies in knowing the self that is unbound timeless beyond that limited perception that limited view of i so in the beginning of practice we might find it very helpful to be able to recognize like i'm getting better i'm 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 less Um, reactive, I'm more able to be responsive, for example, wonderful. I mean, we would all say hallelujah. So that is by no means bad or wrong. We will still stay in a context of trying to improve something that doesn't exist. However, if we don't make the turn to that more primary question I put forward, which is who am I? What am I? What is it that is longing to know my inherent wholeness. What what is that? And what is it like to trace that longing back to its source? And that's where our real happiness lies in knowing who we truly are and in specifically knowing the heart of who we truly are. By heart, of course, I'm not talking about the organ. I'm talking about the core experience of who we really are. And I love that that it does uh, the heart speaks not only to unconditional love but it speaks to possibility. All of that sense of what's possible in this world arises out of the heart.
0: Now you mentioned uh teaching teenagers how to work with negative self-talk, not as a self-improvement practice, but as a way to get underneath the sense of the separate self and all of the negativity we're putting towards our separate self. And, you know, I realized when you did that practice and you said, go back to when you're five, 10, 15, 20, you know, I definitely connect to the teenager inside. Uh, so Caverly, teach me like I'm a teenager And I'm working with negative self-talk the way that you frame it.
1: Well, first, Tammy, I think you'd probably enjoy that if I was teaching you, we would be in a classroom with other people. And one of the most powerful things about um, one of the reasons I focus on collective in this book is because what I've seen happen in community with these tools so you would get a chance to see how, if you were Tammy to give me a snapshot of like a primary identify uh, identity, like what, what teen identity were you most often identified with? Was she, the, was she the bad girl? Was she the smart one? Was she the jock? Who, 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 who was, who would
0: you say that was? I was a uh, smart, cool, and good at sports. So I was like, I- you were smart, cool. You were The well-rounded. And I was smoking pot, you know, with the cool kids. So I kind of had, I had this identity of being super cool, super achiever.
1: So you were a super cool, super achiever. If, if, um, if Susie... It was a lot.
0: It was a lot.
1: It was a lot. And I'm not surprised to hear that was like a primary, primary identity, you know, complex, intellectual, um, engaged, but also too cool to be too engaged, right? (laughs) And and if Susie Q, who people might have labeled as um, uh, um, the class loser for whatever reason, was in your classroom, for her to learn that she, through a direct experience guided imagery, we 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 reveal our our negative self talk in a safe container and in an anonymous way. At the beginning, but for her to realize she has the same negative self talk as you, and maybe more importantly, for you to learn that you have the same negative self talk as her is so profound because that's the beginning of realizing none of this stuff that I talk about in the book, all of this conditioning, none of it's personal. We are conditioned to be running these storylines about who we are and what the world is. There's some change in content, uh, content, but the process is the same. So it's incredibly connecting for us to have a direct experience of that. So now I'm speaking to you, the, the 15-year-old. You know, what are you? You're the cool kid. Go there, Tammy. There you are. You're, you've got your weed, you've got your, maybe you've skipped a certain class because you thought it was stupid and you're too cool for it. Um, what are you what are you telling yourself um, about yourself in a moment where you're struggling?
0: Oh my. Um, I don't connect to my family. I feel like an outsider. Deep down, I'm I'm lonely, even though I have friends, I don't feel like I fit in the world, things like that, alienation. Yeah, it's the most
1: common thing I see in working with teens right now is a deep sense of isolation and alienation. So there you are. All of the, all of that self-talk is reinforcing the quote unquote truth that you're alone, that you're isolated, you're you're cut off. So now, can you get in touch with a need that, that's underneath that storyline, that narrative?
0: Like a real need? Yeah, I think the the core need underneath was to feel a sense of connection and belonging belonging with others belonging on the earth belonging here and now in a world that looked insane to me
1: yes let's be clear the world that is insane on a particular realm in a particular way so you you had a need to belong a need to feel like you're part of i would suggest that that is what we all need another Another person might have slightly different language for it. I, I I need to feel safe. I need to feel whole. But they're they're all variations of the same theme, wouldn't you say? So when working with young people and tools I offer in this book are direct ways to support us in returning to the very thing that we most need you know if if you're if you're listening to this you know that you're not going to get what you most need through a new car or you know if I'm in high school I'm not going to get it through through the next new drug experience you know i'm we're speaking here about how to meet that need in the deepest sense so to be practical about it Next, I would invite you to ask yourself what what is it that if I were to craft a statement, if I were to create a reassurance that is not an affirmation, it's not boosting the ego, it's not it's not um, plumping up a sense of self. It's a it's a statement that returns me. To in your case, a sense of inherent belonging. Can you offer Tammy what a what a statement like that might be?
0: Yeah, maybe something like you're intrinsically part of everything.
1: Yes. You know, I, I would invite all of our listeners to pause for a moment and just receive the words. You are intrinsically part of everything. If we're offering reminders to ourselves like this, we're we're not, again, plumping up a sense of separateness that just furthers the notion of the, the very isolation that you are able to name creates suffering for you. We're using a practice to return us to the very nature of our being, to the thing that we most long for, to the source of our happiness. And when you practice with this enough, and I've seen this very directly, I'll just go back to speaking um, about teens, When I watch teens practice with unconditionally loving reassurances throughout the semester, I see incredible shift based on the, the landscape out of which everything else is happening change. So if the landscape, let's say I'm just trying to become a better person, but the landscape is a constant, Reassertion of the notion that I am a separate self. Again, I'm just going to keep suffering and suffering and suffering and changing outfits, changing costumes within the dance of suffering. But, but for us to begin to move from the ground of being that is who we really are, changes how our thoughts uh are warming in within the this vast ground of being it changes our emotional landscape it changes how we relate to each other we begin this is also something i see in the classroom we begin to see the very being of others that we're relating to as opposed to yeah but you know she's the cool one i'm i'm the i'm the i'm the loser i'm the one that never gets anything right She's Tammy over there. She's the, she's the cool one. We, we begin to connect and I like to speak about it in terms of essence to essence. And my favorite thing about this is none of it's esoteric, none of it's religious, none of it, it's actually about something very simple, which is knowing who we truly are and connecting to each other from that knowing it's 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 so simple, And yet it's the very thing as you look around at the manifestations of hierarchical thinking in our world, as you look at um the our conditioned reality, you see so little of. We see so much divisiveness. We see so much polarization. We see so much, um, again, hierarchical
0: thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, Caverly, you mentioned, this introduction of unconditionally loving reassurances that we can offer ourselves can you can you share some more examples of that and and how you see people working with that
1: yes because i care so much about these contemplative technologies and tools reaching broadly that's why I love working with teens in a public school setting is I can feel how accessible these tools become. We, it becomes something where we're not just going to a monastery to get them. And because I knew this particular podcast had the capacity for potential reach that I don't normally have, I woke up and was present to some nervousness. You know, the self-talk something along the lines of, oh, I really want to get this right. I want to be effective as a teacher. I want to to reach people. I want people to have what I've had the opportunity to have through working with these transformational tools. And it was such a relief this morning as I was lying in bed without any prompting to just hear the voice of, I love you. you've got this. You will speak from the heart because this is this is what you do. you you know how to love. And you don't have to be perfect. you don't have to be articulate in just the right way. You don't have to sound smart. You don't have to get it right you can show up and love, and that'll be enough.
0: That's a a beautiful personal example. And you write in the heart of who we are that perfectionism uh, is a challenge that you yourself uh, have, have had to work through as part of seeing how you separate off yourself. And I wonder if you can share more about your journey through perfectionism, and specifically not as a self-improvement practice, but as a discovery of essence practice.
1: Yes. It took some time to see that this notion of perfectionism was actually not at all helping me "Quote unquote," become a better person. In the theme of what we've been talking about today, it was solidifying my sense of I'm separate. It was giving the inner critic a full time job. And I I want to be clear. I, I I say that in past tense, but it's it's an ongoing practice to pay attention to the way in which that mindset seeps seeps in. Um, and and attempts to take over. It really, it was it was when I began to learn more about how s- structures, oppressive structures on a societal level. Um, I was I learned more about how the structure of white supremacy is maintained. For example, that I began to see that this notion of per, um, perfectionism. It's a it's a byproduct of a larger um, a larger system, and that it's not personal. And so, within that context, we are uh, within a context of perfectionism. We are always striving. We do it personally, if we have the personal, I have a lot of personal conditioning, emphasizing this notion of condition, condition of um, perfectionism. But there,
0: when you, when you, uh, Calvary, just to ask, when you say conditioning yes. and personal conditioning, can you help us all understand what you mean by that? Thank you
1: so much for for backing me up, Tammy, yes. The unborn mind that you and I started the conversation speaking about is unconditioned. As I'm moving through the world, however, I'm often identified with a sense of separate self that has been conditioned or habituated to believe particular things, to think particular things, to act in particular ways. So I, for example, might be conditioned to believe that if I get everything right, then I'll be worthy of love. So I'm habituated to believe that. I'm conditioned to believe that. We can see this conditioning for what it is and let go of it in practice because it's created. It is of the relative. It, it comes and goes. It's a form that's created. It's not absolute truth. So, in a. um, Yeah, let me pause there and, and see. Do you feel that that
0: lands? It does. It does. I think we can all see the conditioning of our own personality formation and how we adapted to this or that as a survival tactic in our family and constructed ourselves uh in response to early inputs so we created this conditioned or y- you could say constructed self and that your perfectionism was your version of that i think absolutely
1: I think, yes yeah. on a personal level and then yeah. within a white supremacist capitalistic culture, we're also collectively moving through the world from a conditioned sense of we need to be perfect or get things right. That's that's one of the qualities of that collective conditioning. So for example, if we had different collective conditioning, there there might be a different emphasis. But if you look at it, it's not just Personal conditioning that says, I should get things right, then I will be rewarded. We're doing it in a collective sense as well. So, one of the themes of this book is to take practices that can help us recognize personal conditioning, see through personal conditioning, let go of personal conditioning. We're also in this book making a link between applying these practices personally and applying them collectively. How can we undo some of the collective uh, distortion? We have personal distortion. We have collective distortion. It's actually not different. There's an intimate link there. But but because we live in an in a I me mean my type society, we approach spiritual practice from this self-improvement lens, and we feel like I am going to apply these practices to me so I can be happier. So what's it like to apply things, not just personally, but also collectively, and then to even get the question, what is the nature of this collective? What is the nature of the personal? It is the same
0: nature. Well, let's talk about this, Kavalee, because I feel like I have uh a lot of agency over my personal life i have a, I can i can liberate myself potentially from my own personal conditioning but when it comes to the collective it it feels so big so out of how i can uh, affect change so help me understand because you're, you're you're trying to show us it's the same process it doesn't feel the same to me
1: yes i hear you and actually, Tammy, I don't know that I would see it as the same either if it had not been for what I've experienced through Peets and Schools. So just one example, there are many, is as I mentioned, how transformation happens collectively in this context where the tools are being offered and, and people are moving through their experience of the tools together. I remember very um, clearly the day that I was supporting one of our teachers. This teacher is now actually our executive director, Janice Martellucci. She was teaching in one of the classrooms and I was coaching her. And she was a little, I, I, I trust that she won't mind me sharing this, but she was a little triggered. She, there was some, there was some students in the class who she would have defined as, um, class jocks who, um, were from very conservative backgrounds and were saying things right out of the box that she felt, um, created a less than safe environment for other people in the room. And she, as a gay woman, felt um, more than just a little put off by some of the behaviors that she was witnessing. These students, fortunately, uh, one of the things I remember saying to her is, if we're not offering these tools for these students, then we're then we're not standing in our vision for true healing, remembrance of our very being for all. this 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 shouldn't just be for the students who um, are really drawn to um, already being able to live on behalf of their knowing that we're interconnected, for example. And these students fortunately exhibited, I think this also speaks to the teachers um, relational abilities, but she was able to to really show these students that she wanted wanted them there. And in that experience, the students began to feel like they could be present to how they are conditioned to move through the world. And they were able to be open To seeing how some of their conditioning was impacting other people in the class. Meanwhile, because some of the other people in the class, folks that identify as female, um, um, some immigrants that were in the class, they began to feel safer because they saw that these young men were open to seeing things about how they had been conditioned to think and act in the world. And so the class got to unpack personal conditioning in a collective context that didn't leave behind the collective conditioning. Young, white, male, cisgendered folks are conditioned to move through the world and behave as a collective differently than um, let's say, um young identified as gay women are and and so for for that practice to get to happen in a setting together created an opportunity for the undoing of personal as well as collective conditioning so the, the you know the personal conditioning is is a little bit um again for most of us a little more accept um accessible easy to reach i i'm conditioned that in order to be loved i need to be a helper or a people pleaser okay i can i can work with that but this again this is working with that personal conditioning and not leaving out the collective conditioning while always keeping our eye on what's true what's underneath this conditioning what's beyond this
0: conditioning what's real you know, Caverly, one of the things that strikes me about this conversation is, you know, I see you as someone who could teach like PhD spiritual explorers. And here you are, and your work in the world is with teenagers. And I just think that's really interesting because, you know, you're, you're bringing forward some pretty deep end ideas. I'm wondering what your thought is about that. You
1: know, my... Thought is that my my greatest practice is to serve love and truth, and this is just where life has plopped me. I really love teaching adults. I love leading retreats for adults. I love um, I love writing. I love reaching the adults in my life who like all of us. I mean I I it really is universal. Just long to be happy, long to know who we truly are, long to um be able to move through the world with actions that are on behalf of that innate well-being and happiness. I also just happen to love young people. I feel blessed that i i have a kind of karmic wiring that makes it such that it's not hard for me to relate to teenagers i talked to some people that are like oh that would be so intimidating for me to to walk into a high school classroom and and be sort of improvising with teens because the curriculum arose out of being in relationship with these teenagers it wasn't some set thing Um, but i i i feel very blessed i i i I love working with teens, but I don't at all feel limited to working with teens. I I really can honestly say that I love leading retreats for adults equally um, to the experience of working with teens. I think the experience of working with teens simply took off in a way that again was I, I feel like sort of spirit driven. I didn't I didn't set out to with some sort of goal to. Um, change education, but that is what it started to happen uh, here in Portland uh, in that uh, in the Portland public schools, there has not just because of our program, but there really is more attention being brought to the kind of education that reminds us of inherent well-being instead of just, you know, the education that supports an exploration of the inner landscape, I should say. So yes, it's it's I, I love it
0: equally. And I think it points though to the universality of what you're teaching that at whatever age there is a, a doorway in. Now I want to ask you something, Caverly, It's about this notion you talk about acts of being that here at the intersection of our knowing to whatever degree we can, what is unborn in us, we can impact, the challenges in the world through acts of being, uh, help us understand what what that means to you. Acts of being. I first heard
1: that phrase um, from Mulu Sadra, who uh, my friend Barnaby handed me a book, and it was on the cover, and I fell in love with the phrase itself. It began to feel like a a koan of sorts, a Zen koan. It began to feel like um, some sort of guidepost, because one of the things I explore a lot in the book, as you know, is being able to discern. It, it, having Zen roots, I love as many the, as many Zen practitioners and Dharma teachers do. Just the practice of discernment. So I love. I love our inherent capacity to be aware, and to be aware specifically of the difference between acting on behalf of the egoic separate self and acting on behalf of the heart of who we truly are. So a way we can bring this to the ground is, can you think of times in your life that you were in love maybe falling in love and you were just acting on behalf of that experience of being in love. And Tammy, I'm just curious if you'd be willing to share any times in your own life where you can remember falling in love and then acting from that experience of being in love.
0: Oh my, the crazy stuff that's done uh, from being totally in love for sure.
1: It's it's, it's it, those actions have a different quality, don't they?
0: Yeah, high risk, pouring oneself out totally, leaping, not being constricted
1: by a conditioned standard, not believing the inner critic, right? Those things all fall away because you're you're acting from love, on behalf of love, and I would even go so far to say as love That's very different from moving, having actions that are on behalf of an egoic separate self. I, from an egoic separate self perspective, I need to protect what is mine. The world of scarcity and deprivation appears. I am this little thing inside a world of scarcity and deprivation. I see others as others. I don't see you as myself. I don't see us as having shared being, our very being being the same. I don't see that. I'm you're over there and you know what, Tammy, you have more money than me and you have you get to live in a prettier place than I do and so now I'm jealous of you, right? That's where all of that stuff lives. So acts of being are actions that that are freed to arise on behalf of who we truly are. And they they have a very different quality in the world.
0: Kaverly, as we come to a conclusion here of just this conversation, what I'm struck by is not so much uh, the what of what we've talked about, but something about how I feel. It's interesting. I feel a quality of mm-hmm. uh, big space. I feel uh, a quality of kind of expansiveness and openness. And I wonder to end if maybe we could just together go into a short meditation that you could lead us in that actually helps us really be here in the space together directly. We're not trying to follow anything you're saying. We're just uh, experiencing, if you will, presence together. And if you could take us into that for a few minutes.
1: I would love that, Tammy. Just tell me what time, how, how many minutes would be good? Take, take five-ish minutes. Five-ish minutes, wonderful. Not required, but I invite the listeners to place one hand on the center of the heart and one hand right where the ribs come in together to touch. Just for three of the longest and deepest inhalations and exhalations you've taken yet today. you've given the last hour to your commitment to know who you truly are. Sort of nourish that experience through listening to the kinds of conversations that happen on this platform. Offer one expression of gratitude or appreciation to yourself for that. And then releasing your hands if you'd like to. And then recognizing that so often our attention is conditioned or habituated to move from thing to thing to thing to thing in this moment. Allow your attention rather than to be directed outward to these various objects, these things. Allow the attention to be freed, to rest back into its source. So if you think of a flashlight and the way the light of the flashlight lands on various things, Let the light now draw back into the flashlight itself. Let the attention rest in awareness. Through these few moments, we're giving ourselves permission to rest in our very being, This brief meditation isn't about disciplining the mind. Give yourself permission to be freed from any sense of striving or efforting. And simply allow yourself to enjoy your own, aware, luminous, unconditionally loving and unconditionally allowing being. Just resting in love as love. With nowhere you have to go. nothing you have to do, and perhaps most importantly, no one you have to be. Just being. one long deep inhalation and exhalation. And as you exhale, perhaps offering one unconditionally loving reassurance to yourself as you transition to what's next.
0: Thank you, friends. Thank you, Caverly. Thank you. I've been speaking with Kaverly Morgan. She's the author of the new book, The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after-the-show Q&A conversations with featured presenters, and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds True, waking up the world.